This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages. And I'm Jonathan. Yeah, so do you remember how at the end of the last episode I was like, was William even going to survive the rest of 1069? On the next episode, we will see how the most critical year of the Norman conquest of England played out. Yeah, well, truth is, I've been struggling mightily with fully understanding all of this stuff going on in the wake of Hastings. The amount of reading I've done, I can't even begin to describe it all. There's just so much. What you hear on this podcast is the best I'm able to do under these self-imposed deadlines, and I have just not been happy with my product. Honest, I've probably written and rewritten, at the time of this recording, upwards of maybe 10 different drafts of the next three episodes, trying to get it all lined out and entertaining. Is this meant to be a woe is me moment? Heck no. I get to learn and do research and write episode scripts and then record it for the enjoyment and education of others. Are you kidding me? This is kind of a cool hobby. But what this is is just an explanation of what's been going on. And the fact that I've recorded and published this episode means that I've worked, well, most of it out, I should say, uh, regarding the next handful of episodes. Even when it was a jumbled mess in my head and in my notes and on my Google Docs, I still couldn't wait to tell you all about this stuff. And I mean that. Which makes me all the more excited to finally get this episode out. Today's episode, episode 83, is entitled Edwin and Morcar's Rebellion. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. In the last episode, episode 82, entitled 1069, I presented, I hope, a picture of England, predominantly from the standpoint of the royal family, from the birth of a future king in Selby, to how William was forced to sit back and watch the perennial Northumbrian carousel of earls, specifically between the years of 1068 to 1069, well, we see that we see the kettle that was the north uh, quickly coming to a boil once again. And I had hoped to have been successful in painting an accurate picture in how the goings-on in the north would launch England on a collision course with, frankly, one of the most horrific and despicable episodes in all of human history, which initially occurred during the winter of 1069 to 1070, but would have actually have lasting consequences in the region for a very, very long time. Everything in that episode is accurate to my knowledge, but I feel like I'd like another crack at it all. When it comes to learning, if you think you got it right on the first try, in my experience, you probably didn't get it right. So when it comes to the last episode, it is part of the narrative, and I'm proud of the work that was done. But on this episode, I'm trying again. Only this time, my little sketch of 1069 is, I hope, going to end up more of a painted portrait. My goal is to understand in richer detail what led up to the winter of 1069 to 1070 and convey this all to you. With richer context comes a richer explanation and with a richer explanation comes what stories are used for in the first place. Emotional connection for better understanding of our shared history. Now, without further delay, let's get into this fascinating period of history. From 1068 to 1069, the kettle that was England was building up unprecedented steam. 
and after the century England had been having, this is a pretty incredible statement. Between Matilda's coronation in 1068 to the events in York in September of 1069, the English were gaining momentum on an underground, grassroots sort of movement of rebellion. And you know it's no wonder the English were exploding with anger by the late 1060s. Northumbria had erupted in violence against Earl Tostig Godwinson. Tostig's brother Harold had betrayed him and married into the Mercian line who supported their own man for Earl of Northumbria. Their rightful king, King Edward II, he died, leaving no heir and plenty of wiggle room for possible usurpers. Tostig brings a legendary warrior and Norse king to make war against England, his home, only to be wiped out by now King Harold II Godwinson. King Harold rushed south because some cross-channel Norman pony boy duke was also making a play on the throne, only for him to also be killed in battle. Now this Norman duke becomes king and leads a trail of destruction in his wake as he travels across this kingdom. Along the way, he plants the seeds for castles that spring up within months of his arrival. And then he proceeds to leave the most corrupt, seems to me anyway, to garrison the area from that castle. Oppressive taxes, ruinous sieges, Norman-induced famines, a dip in English markets causing widespread poverty in the once prosperous island kingdom. Throw in the policy of forced conscription of Anglo-Saxons into the Norman army, not only to fight against their own countrymen, but also against the king's enemies on the mainland. And to boot, when William was back home in Normandy, he put two men in charge of England who harbored no love or compassion for the English people. So badly these two men were, in fact, there were widespread reports of rape and wanton murder, property theft, and business sabotage with nearly no justice given to the English whatsoever. So yeah, I think it's safe to say it's, it's been a rough three years. Three years, that's it. Can you believe all of that happened in just about three years? There were so many moving parts in those three years that few events in world history can match it. What, World War II? The French Revolution? I mean, obviously, these weren't the only times when tragedy struck. But it makes me really think about the Norman conquest of England in the grand scheme of world history. Throughout my life, it was always a kind of a one-off, a statement of fact. Like, like, the Battle of Hastings was in 1066, and the Norman conquest of England was important. That was about it, sadly. But these events in England between, say, 1065 and 1068, as tragic as they were, these were all pretty much bird's-eye view events. One story I found in Tracy Borman's book, Queen of the Conqueror, was a short little tale about an abbot of the Abbey of the Holy Trinity in Rouen, visiting the royal couple in England at an Easter ceremony. As minuscule as this story is, and, you know, again, the grand scheme of things here, I think it sheds light on a larger issue. See, it sheds light on a pattern of behavior, if you will, with England's new king. A thousand years later, only able to see William through the eyes of the chroniclers with very clear agendas, mind you, Borman's tale reminds us that we don't always see William for who he really was. Here's the William 
that each English individual had to endure. And I think it just shows as much, if not more than those previous events, what the English were forced to deal with. See, the story goes like this. Abbot Rayner was there to secure certain property rights in England on behalf of his abbey. This was, of course, quite common, as monasteries and abbeys were always looking for more and more ways to fund their operations. But William was looking to have a little fun uh, himself. The abbot reached for the paperwork. At the same time, it seems to me, that William jabbed at the abbot's reaching hand. See, William's hand was holding a rather large knife. And the move was as if he was going to stab the top of the holy man's hand. The moment, it, it was incredibly tense. Well, after a hearty laugh, the king thought himself hilarious, though Matilda, ever the refined lady of the continental court, no doubt rolled her eyes, disgusted by the look of fear in the abbot's eyes. It was antics like this that made it into the records here and there, that call into question all the disgusting behaviors a bully like William enjoyed that, well, all those things that didn't make it into the records. At the end of the day, some people are just assholes. We just wish they weren't our leaders, that's all. The Worcester Chronicles records the following, quote, Then the king was informed that the men of the north were gathered together and meant to make a stand against him if he came, end quote. All right, so let's play a game, everybody. Which year was this particular record written in? Now, seriously, this statement was written in 1068, but it could have very easily been written in any other, really, 1069, 1072. I mean, this statement could apply to a lot of different years throughout the Norman Conquest. Now, to add what we discussed on the last couple episodes, there was an interesting series of events in late 1067 that would circle back and bite William in late 1068, and it involved an old friend of the podcast. See, upon returning from Normandy in 1068, during a whirlwind tour of Normandy, that is, Earls Edwin of Mercia and his brother Morcar of Northumbria along with other distinguished guests, including one Edgar the Etheling, well, they had about enough of the quote-unquote honor bestowed upon them by William. They were held in such an honorable state that they were forbidden to leave William's side, making them more like hostages than those, you know, quote-unquote distinguished guests. As soon as they made it back to England in 1067, they scattered, Earls Edwin and Morcar, and Edgar the Etheling, escaped the court and melted into the background of Mercia and Northumbria. Though, so as not to raise too many red flags, Morcar and Edgar made sure they made appearances every so often. However, there was one particular nobleman who was missing from the roll call at Matilda's coronation in 1068, though. Earl Edwin. Well, Earl Edwin was getting angrier and angrier at all the castle building happening in the marches between Mercia and Wales, not to mention the sheer amount of authority gifted to an Abbot Ethelwig of Evesham. See, Abbot Ethelwig, the English traitor who had abandoned his own people to save his own skin, not an altogether unheard of situation in these days, by the way. See, Ethelwig was given seven whole shires by William. 
But these weren't any shires. These were shires located in Mercia. Edwin's Mercia, that is. Shropshire, Herefordshire, Worcestershire, Staffordshire, Warwickshire, Oxfordshire, and Gloucestershire. And it's worth pointing out that the city of Warwick was a pretty important city in Mercia at the time. The loss of that one must have stung Edwin pretty badly. And yes, sure, the loss of land upon their return, you know, startled them into any complacency they may have been lulled into while living in the lap of luxury in Normandy. And, of course, the sheer amount of castles popping up inside and outside their domains was a serious issue to keep an eye on. And we can't forget about the brutality of Norman rule that could turn on them and their families at any moment was, well, that was another looming threat they couldn't afford to ignore. But Edwin had his own straw that broke the camel's back. William, in back in Normandy, that is, William had promised his daughter's hand in marriage to Edwin. To marry into the royal family would have been a boon to Edwin's future prospects within this, you know, new Anglo-Norman kingdom. But William reneged on his promise. So as far as Edwin was concerned, enough is enough. So do you remember Edric the Wild's alliance with some Welsh kings? Well, it turns out that Edwin of Mercia also went to searching for some Welsh allies. See, both Edric the Wild and Edwin of Mercia enlisted the help of King Blethyn of Gwynedd, which no doubt did quite little to ease William's anxiety about his western lands. Edwin would covertly negotiate help from various areas around the island, including, again, Wales, as well as local rebels led by Edric the Wild and then Morcar and his loyalists in the north, not to mention Edgar Etheling, who still harbored hopes of assuming the crown he was once elected to. In addition to these big names were Merrill Swain, the sheriff of Yorkshire at the time, as well as both Earl Waltheoff and Earl Gospatrick. Now, without question, as we know, the English put up quite a bit of local resistance already, you know, pockets here and there, but Edwin and Morcar's Rebellion of 1068, as it came to be known, would amount to the first serious large-scale revolt against William's rule, and it would have lasting consequences. Now, at this point, as the Edwin and Morcar and Edgar, as they were building support, Peter Rex calls the effort ultimately, quote-unquote, somewhat tentative in practice. And, as we'll see, he's probably not too far off on his assessment of this particular uprising. But again, it's going to have far-reaching consequences. There was a real sense of urgency in England that never really seemed to have, you know, waned since really as far back as Stamford Bridge when Harold defeated Tostig and Hardrada. William just kept the threat, and eventual actual practice, of oppression very real. Orderic Vitalis even wrote of this period the English, quote, groaned aloud for their lost liberty, end quote, and that they, as Rex states, quote unquote, plotted ceaselessly to find some way of shaking off the yoke that was so intolerable and unaccustomed. In fact, Orderic calls the uprising led by Edwin and Morcar, uh, he says, a fierce insurrection. 
The thing that makes Edwin and Morcar's Rebellion of 1068 such a letdown, though, is that it almost never really got off the ground. I mean, there were skirmishes here and there, but even William of Malmesbury writes later that they, quote, disturbed the woods with secret robberies, end quote, which is really just a fancy way of saying they engaged in a bit of guerrilla warfare, but nothing outright on the battlefield, you could say. Now, that in and of itself is not exactly nothing, though. Guerrilla warfare can be insanely successful, but it's not, you know, sexy in terms of historical conflicts. Peter Rex calls the Maquis in 1940s France, who chose to fight covertly against the indomitable Nazi war machine, as the name Maquis itself is derived from a term meaning to go underground. Now, personally, I recall the two major instances of, or, or areas in America of guerrilla warfare during the American War for Independence back in the 1770s and 80s. See, men like Francis Swamp Fox Marion, Daniel Morgan, and then you have the Overmountain Men. See, these guys, these changed the very course of that war by undermining the open ground European style of warfare. By not allowing your enemy to embrace the very tactics and skills that made them dominant, in the first place, is a lesson for the ages, whether it be the Maquis during World War II or even just a disagreement between friends. Remove their strengths and what's left. This is exactly why, in my opinion, the Norman Conquest went on as long as it did. Folks like Edric the Wild frustrated William's efforts to subdue the masses, and so far in this particular series, we're only up to 1069, Rest assured, the English will employ this beyond this year. William and his Norman and Flemish and Briton knights were all incomparable on horseback, but it's hard to maintain battlefield supremacy when the battlefield itself is actually working against you. Rex writes, quote, This fits in well with the picture which can be drawn of the career of men like Edric and Hereward, it is one of small-scale guerrilla warfare by partisans like the Maquis in France during the Second World War, end quote. In 1068, I will keep reminding myself in order to fully grasp exactly what state England was in at the time, but in 1068, while Edwin and Morcar led a rebellion alongside the <laughs> once and possibly future king of Edgar Etheling, we can't forget that William was forced to also handle Edric the Wild's uprising in the West Country, which had been raging for a full year at that point, Githa's revolt of Exeter, and the Godwinson boys' invasion of Devon and Cornwall. It's all going on right now. Rex adds, quote, William of Poitiers agrees that there was a general conspiracy, although he gives no date for it. That the Earls Edwin and Morcar were the leaders of this resistance movement cannot be directly demonstrated, but those promoting it, certainly sought their support. And they themselves are reported to have wandered at large in the woods and fields. The Abingdon Chronicle says there were many plots and claims that men hid, quote-unquote, in the woods and some in islands, plundering and attacking those who came their way. And at this point, I wrap up Rex's quote. But he continues later, writing of 1068, quote, Orderic Vitalis relates that large numbers of leading men from England and Wales had met together because of the general outcry against Norman injustice and tyranny. 
He says that they sent messengers into every corner of Albion, which was just the, the word for the whole island back then, to incite men to either openly or in secret act against the enemy, to get ready to act. Prayers were said in churches throughout the land for the success of the rising. End quote. And thus we have the western half of the kingdom exploding along with Edwin and Morcar's rebellion. Considering all we've just heard from the records, it's hard to deny the idea that those in the western regions were attempting, maybe, to coincide their attempts with what they've heard from Mercia and Northumbria, from these earls themselves. These upheavals explain why we find William out west in 1068, and we've already taken a look at some of the things he was doing on previous episodes. But put into the larger context of Mercia and Northumbria, we begin to take the point of view that William wasn't just struggling to subdue his new subjects. Rather, William was full on against the ropes at this point. See, William first moved on to Exeter, then delegated men to dig deeper down uh, into the Cornwall Peninsula, which turned out to be pretty successful, actually. Then William moved north to Herefordshire, sending Edric the Wild and his Silvatici scattering into the hills from which they came. And as he pushed into Mercia, Edwin and Morcar's forces attacked from the shadows. But as William pushed into Warwick, where he immediately ordered a castle built, it was then that the earls knew William was a, well, for lack of a better term, the man was a machine. Other castles were built and garrisoned along the way, and Edwin essentially had to come to grips that though he initially fought against William's encroachment and castles, he actually made moves that resulted in even more encroachment and castles built in his earldom. And though we hear only really of Warwick, what about all the devastation William left in his wake? Cities like, say, Worcester, Clifford, Glastonbury, Evesham, and Hereford, these were all in the crosshairs of William's ire during that time. Those were kind of in the area he was traveling. What of them? There are hints at destruction from the, Doom from the Doomsday Book, but nothing contemporary in the records, so far as I can tell. Edwin and Morcar both threw in the towel almost immediately. William allowed their heads to remain attached to their shoulders, and even allowed them to keep a portion of their lands and titles but they were under lock and key at this point. It was an absolute win for the brothers as, man, it could have ended so, so much worse though. I'd so much rather be, you know, grounded by King William than, you know, lose my head. Now, as for Edgar Etheling, he grabbed his dreams of being king and his sister, Margaret, and he escaped with hundreds of Englishmen and things to Scotland, where he found protection after marrying off Margaret to King Malcolm III. Now, this is no small consequence either, as Edgar Etheling would now not only have a safe place from which to collect himself, gather support, and regroup, but he would also have royal backing. Financial backing, that is. This would not be the last time we hear or see Edgar Etheling. The other consequences of Edwin and Morcar's rebellion aren't talked about a whole lot, but historians pretty much unanimously agree that there were a couple other things to come out of it. See, though records may be slim, William no doubt led a campaign of castle building, as I've said, and destruction as he moved about the kingdom. And this isn't just some random opinion either. William has left a thousand years of students, 
of his conquest to marvel at the destruction he left wherever he went throughout England, especially during those first several years after Hastings. William couldn't take a leisurely afternoon walk without scorching a farm field or raising a village, it seems. So it's safe to say that he demolished parts of Mercia during this uprising. Something else of note was the sheer number of castles built along the way. Sure, the West Country, the lands once owned by the Godwins, from Exeter to Dover, and even up into London had plenty of castles scattered about already. But Mercia was some could say, at least deep into Mercia, somewhat new to the impressive nature of those structures. Castles were imposing buildings on an otherwise open horizon throughout the rolling hills of central and southern England. They made for frightening views to the English, who didn't really have anything like, like the castle until William arrived at Pevensey Bay. So it could be said that the fear that William's rule had imposed across south and west of England had moved swiftly northward into Mercia in 1068, due to the rebellion there. And lastly, some historians are open to the idea that many would-be rebels around the kingdom were also paying close attention to these events, as they could easily serve as a, well, a practice run for their own rebellions. The problem was, was that William was already fed up with his new subjects, and the swiftness and brutality that he used in 1068 was enough to cow the most heated of enemies. Either way, the English were hardly finished testing their new usurper king. William, as furious as he was by this time, and, and he was, by the way, well, he was hardly at his angriest, if you can believe it. As hinted in the last episode, William, like his kingdom, was boiling in their rage toward each other. I'm just saying that England between, say, 1068 and 1070 was not really a place I'd wish upon my worst enemy. It was dangerous. From here, Edwin and Morcar are, again, as I said, once again, William's <laughs> honored guests, you could say. And Edgar, he's safe and sound in Scotland regrouping. Edric the Wild, he's once again living in a hole in some forest out west somewhere. Matilda and her newborn, Henry, well, they're back in Normandy, prepping for insurrection on their southern border. Githa and her brood are arriving in Denmark, seeking support and asylum from King Swain II Estrison. And, of course, the carousel of Northumbrian earls continues to spin. There will be consequences for each and everything mentioned, and I can't wait to tell you about them. Here.